This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General is using the weight of a dozen audits to prod a major HHS component into action. At issue are overpayments made to hospitals by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The IG has done repeated audits of that payment process and found some problems, but isn't quite convinced it's getting through to CMS. We get the details now from the Assistant Regional Inspector General, Truman Mayfield. Mr. Mayfield, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. And in the course of these 12 audits of hospital payments, you found 377 overpayments or payments for things that were miscoded by those hospitals. That 377, I'm presuming, is out of maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of individual payments. What was this a sample of, and do you feel that the sample was representative of a problem that's more widespread? Sure. I'll give a little bit of background on this audit itself. This audit is a roll-up of 12 previous audits, and in those 12 previous audits, we were looking at individual hospitals. The OIG has done audits of individual hospitals for a number of years. We go out and we look at claims that are at high risk. We select a sample frame of the paid claims for those individual hospitals, and we pull a statistically valid sample from that frame. And this is not all Medicare payments to the hospitals. It's some selected specific claims that we think are at high risk of improper payment. And then uh, we go out, we look at those, we pull those claims, we look at the hospital's operations, we give those claims to professional medical reviewers and make a determination on whether those claims are appropriately billed to the Medicare program. And the results for the individual audits, at least, are given back to those hospitals. And we tell them, hey, repay the amount to the Medicare trust fund that you've been overpaid. And then we notify CMS of the findings in those individual audits. And we call CMS the action official. They're the funding agency through Medicare for each of those individual hospitals. So it's really incumbent on CMS to ensure that the recommendations we've issued to the individual hospitals are acted upon and implemented. And this audit report right here, as you said in your intro, is a roll-up of 12 of those previous audits. Now, we've done a lot more than that, but we just picked 12 of the more recent ones that we've done. And this particular audit is looking at CMS rather than at the hospital specifically to see if CMS was doing its role, you know, following up and making sure the uh, action was taken. So this is somewhere between a tap on the shoulder and a club to the back of the head to get their attention? (laughs) We would call it communication. (laughs) All right. And just one more technical question. Do you have a sense of the cause of the overpayments? And the reason I ask is, I mean, there's Medicare fraud that happens, but it sounds like this is mistaken coding or some problem that is less than outright dishonesty, but there's something in the system that's causing these glitches? Correct. Yeah, and none of these underlying 12 audits did we allege any fraud at all. The OIG does look at fraud, waste, and abuse, but we're the audit arm of that. So we're looking at either waste or abuse. It could be mostly claims that were miscoded for one reason or another. I mean, you can get to the fundamental basis of any claim that's filed with Medicare. It's the responsibility of the hospital to ensure that whatever they put on that claim is supported in the medical records. You know, when they bill us for something, they need to be able to support what that claim is saying. And some types of claims are more vulnerable. They're more complicated. They're more vulnerable to improper payments than others. Right, because just to make an analogy, many years ago I spoke to someone from the IRS that said if we find that a substantial portion of people are making the same mistake on a form, it's not them, maybe it's a bad form. So it could be something that CMS needs to clarify so the hospitals are clearer, possibly. That's a very good analogy, yes. That works well here. 
All right. And so in this particular audit, as you said, you were looking at CMS. And what did you find that they haven't maybe quite been taking your prior advice from the first 12 audits to heart? Well, the first 12 audits for each of those hospitals, they generally would contain three recommendations. One is that the hospital repay money to uh, the federal government for overpayments. The second would be that they look at other claims that are similar to the ones that we audited and do a self-audit and basically determine whether overpayments existed and then repay that additional money. And third is that they improve their internal controls to make sure that those improper payments didn't happen again. So each of the underlying 12 audits would have had those three recommendations. And we went to CMS and we said, okay, where do you stand in following up on that? Now, for the recovery recommendations, where we're actually telling the hospitals to repay funds, CMS has done a pretty good job. They've recovered approximately 91% of the amount of overpayments that they've agreed with us were overpayments. So we'd say that is a positive. With respect to the recommendation that the hospitals do the self-audit and then report that amount, we think there's room for better communication between us and CMS and possibly between CMS and the hospitals. And there's an underlying cause for that, uh, if you want to get into the details, but all these hospitals have appeals rights. And so they may not respond immediately to these recommendations and implement them. And the OIG doesn't want to get in the middle of the appeals process. You know, we want to make sure the hospitals have every right they've got to, you know, go all the way through the system. So some of these repayments don't happen immediately, but we wanted to make sure CMS was aware that we're still tracking these recommendations and we want to make sure that they're tracking them through the appeals process and they don't get lost in the shuffle of time. We're speaking with Truman Mayfield, Assistant Regional Inspector General at Health and Human Services. And just to be clear, the second two recommendations to look at similar claims to make sure those are okay and to improve internal controls, those are recommendations to the payees, to the hospitals, correct? Correct. So you want CMS to make sure that they follow up, that the hospitals have done that? Right. Ultimately, our findings are really just recommendations. CMS is the the people that hold the money. They're the ones that are the action officials. They're the ones that have to enforce it. They always have the opportunity to say, you know, OIG, you got it wrong and disagree with our findings. In these 12 audit reports, they agreed that with what we were finding. So now it's just a matter of taking action and communicating that action back to us so that we can improve our audit product. To be honest, we want to know which claims are going into appeals and, you know, where they stand on a more detailed level than what we're getting from CMS at this point. And just while we're at it, give us a sense of the numbers involved here. How much were the total payments and how much in those 12 audits were improper that you identified, just in dollar volumes? So total in overpayments that we found in these underlying estimated overpayments in these 12 audits was approximately $85.5 million. Yeah, so it's not nothing. I mean, it's not... Uh, oh, it's not nothing. Yeah. Now, I'll have to say, in the CMS world, you talk some really big dollars really quick. Sure. So. Yeah, a trillion or so <laughs> in a given year right. for one of the programs. And what about the nature of the claims? Were they particularly complex types of medical situations? or They sort of span the whole gamut. One of the types of claims that we audit is really extremely complex. These are people that are in the hospital for a long period of time. And so there's a lot that the providers have to get right to get those claims. They're big dollar claims, frequently over $100,000 each. Some of the other types of claims that we look at is 
what we call it is upcoding, but it's where a patient goes into a hospital for one type of illness and the hospital really bills for something that's more complex than what the patient really was showing. And that's been a standard so that you look to see if it's supported in the medical records. And if it's not, no, the hospital should have been paid the lower amount and not the higher amount. And the other fairly common one that we look at is if a patient is in a hospital and then they get released from the hospital, but instead of just going home, they're going to another facility to get treatment, you know, like a skilled nursing facility, or they're getting home health treatment. There is supposed to be edits in the system that reduce the payment to the original discharging hospital. So because CMS didn't want to pay twice, to make the same patient better for the same illness. So there's coordination between the different provider types, and that's dependent on making sure that the hospital codes these claims correctly. If they code it incorrectly, there's a couple of things that can go wrong. There are supposed to be edits in the system that will catch some of this, but really the hospital should be getting it right to begin with. Yeah, sounds like coding is a skill in and of itself for a hospital. It is, and uh, some of the hospitals we go to, Frequently, when they're saying how they've improved in their internal controls, they'll say that they have, you know, provided education to their coding staff because that's where the medical world hits the billing world, and that's where the, you know, errors can occur. Sure. Some of it is is teaching their people to document better, uh, so that the coders themselves know what to do. Yeah, don't code a tonsillectomy as a quintuple bypass because there's a lot of financial applications there. And you mentioned also the issue of communication between CMS and the hospitals that you wanted to talk more about. That's actually, uh, I guess if there was a takeaway for this particular audit, it's that we want CMS to provide us more details. I keep using the phrase CMS. We're talking about the Medicare program, and CMS is not just this one building somewhere. It is a complex organization that involves numerous contractors spread throughout the country. And some of this information the individual contractors have, but it's sort of siloed. And we have a process, ongoing process on all of our audits where OIG and CMS, we share information back and forth, but we want more detail. We want that granular detail so that, number one, we can decide if these claims If they're not really being supported or if there's something that's changed, we might want to move on and look at a different type of high-risk claim. Uh, We've got limited audit resources, so we're using this to improve our own work product as well as, you know, any oversight of, of the Medicare program. Right. So your philosophy or approach then is to find those claims that could give a lot of leverage because they're indicators of larger problems. You have to identify those, and then the issue becomes the data across these silos to get at the scope of the problem. That is correct. So you expect CMS this time maybe to take a little bit more active role in getting after the ones from the previous 12 audits? <laughs> that That's what we're expecting. And um, the, each year, OIG issues a number of different audits to CMS. And some of those are on big nationwide issues. Some of them, uh, we're recommending that CMS implement edits in their nationwide processing system for claims. Some of them, we're recommending that CMS may either issue new regulations or, you know, get a legislative change. In the event of one hospital, if we send in, you know, one audit that has a hospital that got some billing wrong, CMS may not know, well, is this just a situation with that one hospital or is this a systemic problem with Medicare as a whole? But then we do another audit, and we send them another hospital. And then we do another audit, and we send them another hospital. You know, eventually, someone should be aggregating these results, and, you know, the numbers add up pretty quickly. 
So we think CMS, someone should be aggregating these numbers and uh, using that to improve Medicare oversight. Truman Mayfield is Assistant Regional Inspector General at the Health and Human Services Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report, the latest one, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really 
sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. 
And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs, how, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First. Always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.